Right rhymes with fight for a reason. We're not all meant to be at the front line. I'm way more comfortable sitting down and trying to figure out how to write back against something that I really dislike. I'm going to let these words from Euphemia Fantetti bridge the connection between what has been a theme in the last few Lit Mag Love episodes around abusive mentors and hashtag me too in Canadian literary circles and learning how to write difficult stories in a writing community with mentors who support you. As Euphemia put it, you can't always know who is really gunning for you to succeed and who is just sitting there rubber stamping and like, I don't care if it doesn't look like me and it doesn't sound like me. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Though, as she points out, we know more now thanks to social media. This is Lit Mag Love. My name is Rachel Thompson and I'm a writer and editorial member at Room. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, literature, art, and feminism since 1975, and We Write, We Light, online courses and more to help you polish and publish your writing. Each episode of Lit Mag Love takes you behind the scenes of literary journals to give you insights on what's going on there. I talk to writers and editors about their practice, delving into what they like in submissions, how journals work, and current trends and topics in the literary scene. For this episode, I have to confess that I actually looked up Euphemia to see if she was editing anywhere because I really wanted to have her on the show. Generous and wise, her advice to all writers has always hit home for me. She has particular resonance in talking about writing about trauma, which has also become a bit of a mini arc in the last couple episodes of Lit Mag Love. So let me introduce Euphemia Fantetti. She is a graduate of the Writer Studio at Simon Fraser University. It's also known as TWS, and I mentioned this because we mentioned some of the mentors from that program in this episode. And she also graduated from University of Guelph's MFA in Creative Writing, and her first book, A Recipe for Disaster and Other Unlikely Tales of Love, was runner-up for the 2013 Danuta Glead Literary Award and a winner of the 2014 F.G. Bassani Prize. Euphemia is an essay editor at the Humber Literary Review. Welcome to the Lit Mag Love podcast, Euphemia Fantetti. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. I want to start by asking you about sort of your origins as a writer. So what do you think made you the writer of the family? And did you know other writers growing up? This is a great question, Rachel. Um, so to Fontaine's, I didn't know other writers growing up. So I had no concept that this was something people could do. I had no idea that anybody could make a living at it. And certainly there were a lot of people that said you couldn't. I was the only book person in the family. I was the only person who really read books and was into books. And um, my father had like a grade school primer that he used to pull out every so often. And he would sort of read me um, Aesop's fables from it and tell me like, these are really important stories because you actually learn about people and you learn about life. And I think those were really tender moments. And uh we were both living in this kind of fearful environment and afraid of my mom a lot. So those tender moments, like I really glommed onto them and I needed to escape the violence of my home. So books were there. And I remember, I still remember the first word I learned in English and how it got pieced together for me. And I was like, that's three words in one, the word together, you know, it's like to get her makes one word. And so there was such a, pleasure and joy around reading. And then writing was just something that I was an anxious kid at school. I didn't particularly enjoy school. And the only time you could really get me to focus and not notice that the time was passing was if you gave me 
a piece of paper or the full scap stuff and the pencil and you said, write. And that's what I would do. And I started noticing that like, I didn't make the same grammar mistakes that other kids made only because I read a little bit more. I wasn't like a great at those kinds of things. It was just that I, I read, so I didn't make the there, 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 or the it's, it's, or the your, your mistake because I asked teachers if I could take the textbooks home. And then when Scholastic started doing that thing where they sold the books through schools, I kept asking my dad to get me some. So I think that was part of the journey of being a writer and that love of books and that feeling that if when you're growing up, you're incredibly isolated or lonely because of wherever you're growing up, because maybe you're different than everyone else you're growing up around or because you're the different one in your family, then your friends are those other writers out there in the world that are like giving you a window into another world and letting you use your imagination as a form of survival. Years and years ago, I saw J.K. Rowling talk about how she had, this was when she was starting to get big. She was like just on the cusp of becoming like the phenomenon that she became. And people wrote to her, children wrote to her all the time asking for admission into Hogwarts. And she had already hired a staff of people to answer a lot of the fan mail, like, and the children she responded to herself. And I thought, of course, if you're trying to survive like an impossible family or a violent home or um, a family that rejects you because they don't all accept you as you come into the world, you would say like, please let me come to Hogwarts. Like I'm sure I'm probably not a muggle. I've got to be like a person who has magic in them. So I always felt like that was a really important thing to hear. Cause I thought like, that's what saved me was the reading. That's what, still saves me on when I'm having a rough week or when I'm falling into despair. I just think like, let me go find my favorite uh, writer on the shelf or somebody whose work I'd like to read now. And that's my community. That's my safe place. Oh, I'm verklempt even just hearing you say that, not to minimize by using a kind of silly word for, but that, that's very touching to hear because I think I really resonate so much with that. And, and you mentioned your father. Yes. And, and of course, I want to ask about him. And I'm going to do that right off the bat here, too, because fabulous. I guess I'm thinking because we're connected on Facebook. And I know you post mm-hmm. little vignettes about what things he said. And then I was also rereading the essay that you wrote in the Globe and Mail called yeah. Food Fight Italian Style. Right, right. <laughs> and where you talk about how he was trying to raise a mouthy kid and cope with a mentally ill wife at the same time. Right. And so I'm going to pack a few things into here. So at one point, we also spoke about the writing advice that he told you early on. That <laughs> you wanted to be a writer. Yes. Like, oh, yeah. you can write when you're married, right? <laughs> yeah. And looking after the kids. What does he think of your writing now? And how has that worked out? <laughs> so yeah, I was 17 when he said that to me. And I had actually had this experience where I'd written a play and the play had done well. And I was like, it's happening. This life I could only imagine and dream of. It was that feeling inside of me. And I was like, is it really possible for me? Like, you know, I don't come from book people. My parents didn't have access to a bookstore or a library. Could I possibly be what I imagine this person who can actually say things in an articulate fashion and have people like want to know what I think about something. So he turned to me, it was one of the biggest fights we ever had when I was 17 was he said, you know, what's the big deal? Like when you're at home with the kids and your husband goes to work, you can just write, you know, like, it's not like it's an all day job looking after kids was his thinking. And uh, I 
said, that's the most ignorant thing I've ever heard anybody say. And my dad's not an ignorant man. So the word ignorant, he exploded. And we came home, we were in the car and he, we came home and we were fighting, we were shouting at each other. And it was so rare that my mom actually was in shock and she went into like nice overdrive, which never happened because we were fighting. She actually brought out a different side of herself. It took me like hours to forgive him and say like, you don't understand what I want. You don't understand what I need. You have no concept of like, I have dreams, that kind of thing that you can say when you're arrogant and you're young and you don't understand any of the sacrifices that your parents made. And uh, he said to me, do you think I dreamt of being a butcher? And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so he said, uh, I had dreams too. I didn't have those opportunities. He didn't have the money for me to go to school. There was no opportunity for the education that I wanted. I went to work. I paid off my parents' debts, all things that like, you know, you just don't have a sense of it. And he, he just let me know that. And I was like, oh my God, like, I can't believe I'm not, you know, I knew something of their life, but really not a lot. And uh, it was the beginning of kind of going like, if I really want what I want. And he'd never said to me, like, get a practical education or do this or do that. He just said, like, whatever you want, you know, whatever you want to do, I support you. I just think this is going to be really hard. I don't know how you make a living at this. Like we had been told like when I was in grade eight, a teacher had said, if is a, a good writer, like maybe she should go to journalism school. And I didn't even know what that meant. That's how far reality was from like, I, I just sort of had this idea like a journalist is a person who understands political science and they understand this and they understand. And I thought that's beyond my capabilities. And so I was like, clearly that's not who I'm going to be. And my dad had said to me, you know, you've had some encouragement in this field, so you should pursue it, but how will you pay your rent and how will you make a living? And he, I think, hoped that I would have a more traditional life. He's always been incredibly supportive of anything I did, but initially I think he was just really, really worried and he was really stressed. He was developing mental illnesses that we didn't know about. So the times that he hasn't been able to be like 100% there, it's mostly been because of fear and there, the fear is sort of aggravated by mental health issues. But otherwise I consider myself incredibly lucky that he never told me you can't do that. That's ridiculous. Uh, don't dream. Don't think about these things. He's always just sort of said to me, like, that's your gift. He really believes that gifts come from God. His gift is mathematics. Yeah, we couldn't be more different and look so similar. Like, he looks like me, but 30 years in the future and as a man. You know, we're clearly deeply connected to each other. We have completely different skills and abilities kind of thing. But going back to your question about uh, if I knew any writers, I didn't know any writers, but I knew storytellers because I come from people who didn't have a lot of access to education or books but they were incredible storytellers. So that oral storytelling tradition that we all come from, I think has real value. And I think sometimes it gets neglected in this world where the emphasis is on the publishing and the book and the hardcover is better than the soft cover. Like all of these different layers of judgment instead of just realizing that like the storytelling, that's the gift. It's the gift and it's also the huge responsibility. Like I think because I write so much about my family, because sometimes I wish for them, I wish that I didn't. For me, I have no choice. Like I write to excavate what's happened and find my way through the chaos of what's happened because otherwise some of those experiences felt like there's a lot of 
suffering and chaos without self-awareness. And I don't want to continue my life that way. I don't want to be like a pinball at the mercy of life. I'd rather figure out like, oh, I'm having this reaction because this is happening. And I remember this from this. And I know this because I've written it down and I've accessed that awareness that I wouldn't have if I didn't write it down, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I definitely want to ask you more about how you do that and how you've used that gift and and take that responsibility. And I find that's something that I struggle with often is thinking about like what you're saying about that you have no choice. Right. So that it's a little unfortunate for your family somehow too, that you're writing about it, but that you need to, you must. Yeah. I have prayers that I say before I write. I have intentions that I speak out loud before I write. I remind myself that the goal is to get to the truth and to uncover it. I tell myself that I would have really benefited if someone had come forward and said, this is what it's like when you come from a family that's immigrant family, dealing with a person with a severe mental illness, intensely violent, steeped in misogyny, steeped in old world paganism, married to thousand years of Catholicism and the burden that that is. I think that if someone had said to me like, it looks like this, or if I'd even read about a character that was like that, and I said, look, there's me on the page. I think about what an incredibly life-affirming and earth-shattering and thunderclap that would have been for me. And so I think when I go to write these stories, I think years ago, I was doing this play about my family. So it was like a one-woman show. And the big shock for me was the number of women that came up to me and said, my mother tried to kill me too. My mother was really dangerous. My mother was violent. And I was like, I thought it was me. I thought it was something so particular to me, like my experience of, um, it's really easy to think it's you if you're the person on the receiving end of a lot of aggression and violence, and especially from birth, from the moment you have memory. So to find out that there's a whole tribe of women who've gone through this and not just women but there's a whole tribe of people that have had this experience and they are just looking for the validation that it's happened and they're just looking to have someone put into words what it feels like because maybe they've gone and tried to get help or maybe they've done a whole bunch of other things looking for help and then you get that kind of like pushback that I think sometimes happens in therapy where they'll be like, what can you do about this? What can you do now? And I feel like that puts the onus on the person who has suffered to end the suffering when sometimes it's better to just say this really awful thing happened. I'm sorry that it happened. I'm going to sit with you and give you a cup of tea or something like that. Well, we just wait out this terrible feeling because so many atrocious things happen. And uh, I think that there's this pervasive kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You got to fix this. What are you doing to make this better? Do you have a self-care list? Do you have a this? Do you have a, are you doing this? Are you going for a run? Are you going for a walk? Are you going for a jog? All of that kind of stuff that I think we all know that like there are things we could do that would be a little healthier than maybe running across the street and buying like a gallon of Haagen-Dazs and eating that at the same time as you're eating chips and then just kind of being like, that's my dinner for tonight. Everybody knows what it takes to eat a healthy diet. When you're in pain or when you're suffering because something's happened and it's like a tripwire that reignites that trauma in the central nervous system, I think it's appalling to kind of ask people to be like, could you have handled this better? Could you have done that? I think it's incredibly insensitive. When I think about writing about my family, 
I think that there will always be the person that says that's not how it happened. Like my mother's never going to agree with me. My mother's never going to admit that she was abusive. She's never going to think that she was excessive in her violence. She really grew up in a world and a time and a place where you could do anything to people short of murdering them. And they had to tolerate you. They had to take care of you. They didn't walk away from you. You don't, she didn't come from a world of divorce. And so she just brought her worst self to the game every day. And we put up with it for a very, very, very long time. My dad was married to her for 36 years and I didn't stop speaking to her until about four years ago. So when I write those stories, I tell myself no one was at their best. We all failed each other. And I want to be honest in telling that story. I don't want to gloss over the parts and the times where I was vicious or angry and I didn't walk away. I didn't take the silent protest or the peaceful route. Like I fought back. I landed blows, whether I was cornered or just because I was having that kind of day where I was like, I've had enough of this and now I, I respond this way too. So I think when I get to the writing part, I think how can I do this and honor the stories that we're all carrying inside of us? Me, my mother, her mother, my father, his father, all the way back. And I just think, I'm sure that the ancestral memory of the violence that my parents and their parents and going back endured in poverty, in lack, in not having enough, like just that kind of really not ever feeling safe or secure in the world, then I think I'm here to honor that. I'm here to acknowledge that. I'm here to say, this is what happened. And also ensure that it doesn't happen to anyone else. I really appreciate what you said about being honest about you landing blows and and like understanding the story from a bunch of different angles. In some ways you've answered some of my questions to around like I write from my life as well and I struggle sometimes with how to write about these difficult times in part because I fear repercussions in my personal life but at the same time I think that therein sort of is the answer of like how you do this too is with that kind of ethics in mind I love that you do that prayer ritual before because for me when you're writing something that mm-hmm. happened you finally understand it from different angles because you're forced to get some of that perspective exactly I think you, you have to ask for help, whether it's writing it on a piece of paper or saying out loud, ask for the help. You need the support and you need the help in telling those stories that are the really hard stories to tell. Because usually I might sit down to try to write something else, but it always comes back to the thing that I'm most afraid of, the thing that I'm uncomfortable about, the thing that that's where the writing starts to go because it wants out. It doesn't want to sit in a dark corner and intimidate me for the rest of my life. It wants me to pull it out and look at it and examine it and throw it into the sunlight and say, like, I see what you are. You're this experience. And the reason you happened is because of all of these threads of history and expectation and grief and loss and violence interconnecting. And then I came along. And that was that day in 1979, August, that kind of thing where you're like, and that's how it all came together. Because otherwise there's just more and more unpacking of like 
pain and pain. And I think like if you can start to look at it from all those different angles with honesty and with compassion too, because in the moment when I'm working on things, I'm not feeling this way. I'm just feeling dreadful. And I'm feeling like, I don't think I want people to know this. Why would I want people to know this about me? Why would I want them to know this about my mother? Or if it's a terrible draft, like if you're working on the shitty draft and you're like, oh God, this sounds like I want people to pity me or something. So every step of the way, it feels uncomfortable for a different reason. Maybe because you're thinking like, oh, it's not great writing. Or you're thinking, oh, I don't really want to reveal this. So all of those different factors can add up to making you feel like incredibly uncomfortable. And I don't know how else to get through that other than to keep writing other than to just kind of keep nudging that story forward and figuring out what the best way to tell it is and how you're going to reveal the things that you want to reveal and, and recognize that not everything is necessary for the story. Like some of the stuff that you write, it might not fit that particular essay or that particular story. So you're going to have to like compost it and throw it into something else. Nothing's ever wasted. Just the process of trying to figure out how to tell the difficult stories. It's not wasted. I was Thinking about in the last couple of weeks, Nicole Bright had her course, the CNF Outliers, was starting up again. And a year ago, I took her course because I knew I was going to be writing an essay. I was asked to write an essay on the topic of love. And I thought, God, this is going to be really hard. I feel a lot of shame and humiliation around this topic. Those two words, uh, shame and humiliation, when you say love, that's not your first reaction. But for me, it was. And I thought, I want to take this class. And I figured out the story and how I was going to tell it before the end of the class. I figured out it needed to be in a hermit crab. And she was starting up her class again. And I sort of did a signal boost to former students saying like, it's a great class. You might want to think about it if you're feeling like you want to really develop the lyric essay and or develop unusual forms of creative nonfiction. And it was right on the heels of like stuff in politics that I was like waking up listening to Trump and there was stuff about Doug Ford and all these things where I just felt like, oh, the bullies and the brutes, they just always win. And I sent out the email saying like, right rhymes with fight for a reason. Like we're not all meant to be at the front line and capable of wielding something that's like an instrument of fighting. But you can sit down and write if that's your way of fighting back, if that's your way of trying to overthrow things, like that's what you do, that's where you come from. I'm way more comfortable sitting down and trying to figure out how to write back against something that I really dislike and putting in, in the most concise and clear, direct way of saying, no, this is what racism looks like, this is what misogyny looks like, this is what this looks like, this is what, you know, I hadn't even heard the term microaggression till two weeks ago when uh, Leonardo Carranza told me and I was like what I had no idea what that was and I've been experiencing it my whole life <laughs> you know I used to call them backhanded compliments mm -hmm. you know where I was just like I walk away feeling like that doesn't feel good so I was like oh, now I'm on the microaggressions like <laughs> <laughs> There are so many threads I want to pick up. I mean, I definitely want to give a shout out to Nicole Bright, who's an amazing teacher. And yes, she and I did a webinar on writing about trauma. I loved it. For me, 
it was an experience of going into it going, I don't know how to do this and learning like I have to do this as a writer and that sometimes, and actually I'll tie this in a bit with what Alicia Elliott was telling me in my most recent interview mm-hmm. where she's saying, you don't have to write about the trauma. You can write about what you learned or around the trauma too. But if you feel compelled to write about it, there are other ways to do it. And I love the idea too of the hermit crab essay. That's a brilliant form where you can sort of hide within this shell but still be able to tell the story in a way that... Definitely. When I think about, let's say, the trauma or the thing that you're writing about, I think of mine as like, mine always comes to me in the form of the house that I grew up in. Like, I still have nightmares about that house. And I think of it like this. I don't walk up to that house and knock on a door and say, let me in. I go in the side door and I look around and then I get out before the ghosts notice I'm there. And it's because there's so much in there and sometimes when I'm writing an essay I'm building a new room onto that house because that house is always frozen in time and place for me and so it's kind of like a place to go visit and I can look at the trauma from a different angle or I can look at the experience from another place in time and definitely I think like you don't have to write about the trauma but you want to write about like what you've understood and what's formed you and what you understand about the mini traumas that people visit on each other every day out there in the world. Like just the acts of aggression and the acts of like unkindness that you see that are just going to be tripwires for the difficulties that you've experienced in your past, that kind of thing. For sure. And I want to say something about the work that you do with other writers and the light that you bring, because when you're talking about referring students to Nicole's course, you're talking mm-hmm. about your own students too. Mm-hmm. And I know one thing I just want to discuss is in setting up this time with you, I had some mental health related challenges. Like I had this anxiety and insomnia the first night. And so I had to reschedule and I felt totally safe telling you this straight out in spite of, you know, not knowing each other that well. Like we haven't, we've only met a couple times in real life, I think. Right, right. And me, you know, wanting to put on the professional podcaster hat and (laughs) professional podcaster like that. I mean, you have such a spirit of care for other writers. And I see that in interactions that other writers have with you on social media mostly, but that comes through every interaction you have with writers. And so I'm just wondering what motivates you to help other writers? Like, how do you get from that fear and trauma and, okay, I'm going to tell my story because I didn't see my story growing up too. And then getting into that literary citizenship where you're working and helping develop other writers and help them tell their stories to you. I'm just going to say, you're a very professional podcaster and I'm loving what Mag loves. So thank you for this. It's just such a great um, service for other writers that you're providing. And so I think the thing that inspires me the most is like to make sure that community and other writers feel safe. And I think it comes out of the times that I haven't felt safe and the times that I've had terrible experiences. And I don't mean in writing specifically, but just in life. Like it was very fundamental to my formation and my core to experience a person very, very close to me, like the person that should be my protector and should have been a person who shepherded me carefully through childhood and into adulthood was actually uh, the person who antagonized me the most and was incredibly cruel and difficult and didn't offer that support. And so it was like a constant struggle and a constant fight. And I found by the time I was a teenager, I was exhausted and it took years to find out And I had to do it on my own. I had years to find out I was really dealing with PTSD 
and it was like a complex version of it from childhood. And I was being told that I had depression and I was like, I don't think that's it. It doesn't suit. It doesn't fit. And so what I noticed happening was that my inner critic, just like anybody's inner critic, is incredibly vicious and incredibly effective. And I don't even think I can call my inner critic an inner critic. It's really like a choir, like an intense choir, like the one that starts up with the like, deep, scary organ music. And I'm like, here we go. It's coming, right? So I've noticed everybody has that. And in the classroom experiences that I had where I was really privileged and it was an incredible honor to suddenly be a teacher. I drew on the teachers that I'd had, really some of the vital ones that I'd had in childhood who'd been kind to me and recognized that I really loved writing. And I drew on some of the teachers that we both know from the writer studio, Betsy Warland and Wade Compton and just really lovely people. And I would get into the classroom and at least one, if not three or four students would come with their work for workshopping and they would say like, rip it to shreds. You know, I'm, I'm fine if you just take this apart. And I just was like, that's not what's going to happen. And there was a constant need to remind people, especially because I was teaching creative nonfiction, that you never get to judge the person's decisions. You never say like, I don't understand why this narrator went back to her husband when he was being abusive, or I don't understand why this person would even put up with this relationship, or I don't understand why this person got pregnant. Like you can't say that. And it's not safe for the person who's written the story. Even if you're saying the narrator, it's absolutely uncalled for. You have to create this protective space in a room where people are being creative. And so that automatically means to me that no one is ripping anybody apart. And where they got that idea from, I understand where they got the idea from because we all live in this world and we all think like, okay, you know, if I'm going to be a better writer, I want to, I want to be better now. I want to be better yesterday. And I want just rip it to shreds. Tell me how to make it better. And I thought, has that really worked for us? Look at where we are as a society, as a global, like as a planet, it's not working. And if people really think that the incredible amount of writers that have been successful, really, really successful and held up as like geniuses, if those writers didn't have their egos massaged, really? Like, I don't think so. Like that happened all the time. And I feel like it's very clear to me when I'm in a classroom and when I'm seeing other writers that they've experienced what I've experienced. Maybe they didn't see themselves in books, so they never saw themselves reflected in literature. And so they didn't know that they were of value because they valued books, but the books didn't value them. They were told that to get better, they had to put up with having their work critiqued. That's not the same as being abused. And we know that that happens. Like the people take people's work apart and they say cruel things. And that's more of an attack than giving feedback. And we have to kind of establish those parameters and make sure everybody recognizes them. And there's no moving forward without compassion, I think, for ourselves and for each other. I don't want to be part of a community that doesn't have that kind of baseline of uh, respect and compassion and care for each other. I've walked away from people who don't engage in respectful behavior. I, I've walked away from friendships where there wasn't like care for each other. If there's like this kind of weird envy that comes in, like there's no place for that in building a safe community. I've been told that I'm hyper vigilant about this kind of stuff. And I think like, well, I've had a lifetime of 
watching and experiencing cruel ignorance. And so I'm on guard. I am hyper aware of it. And I am like, no, that's not acceptable. No, that's not, you know, like I, I've sometimes walked up to people and said things like, I really didn't like the tone that person was taking with you. And then they'll be like, oh. And then I think like, am I really, because it's easy to gaslight yourself if you've been gaslighted by so many people in your life, you know, and I've had enough of it. I've been through it and I'm not going to accept it anymore. So I think all I can really do, like I was saying before, is champion other people and get them to see we're all on this path. It's an individual path, yet every so often our paths are going to meet up. And when we get to the meadow clearing where we can all get together and have a party and say like, great, this person got published over here, or this person just got nominated for this award, or this person just got recognized, then we all get to celebrate. And then we have to basically go back on that trail that's kind of lonely and isolated. But for any chance you get to say to someone else, I see where you are. What can I do to help? There will be bad days and there will be days where the writing is bad or the days where you feel terrible and you have to keep writing because you have a deadline. There will be all kinds of things, but there will also be days where we can get together and celebrate our collective achievements and our community moving forward. What is the quote I'm trying to remember that you told me about the opposite of envy or jealousy? Oh, uh, yeah, that's actually a quote from these Buddhist teachers on this retreat that Danny Shapiro goes to. And it's she mentions it in her book, Devotion. And what these teachers say is the far enemy of sympathetic joy is envy. The near enemy is comparing. It is painful and unskillful to compare. No matter what conclusion we draw, comparison creates agitation in the mind. So. I mean, it spoke to me and I copied it out because we live in a deeply competitive world and there's constantly comparisons being made. I think comparison is one of the ways that misogyny thrives in the world. And I think that anything we can do to unseat that and upend it and throw it over and um, throw it over, is that the way? No, overthrow. See, I sometimes say things backwards in my head, but they'll come out okay. I love throw it over. That's great. <laughs> yeah, throw it over. So I think anything we can do to do that, it's our responsibility to do that. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, literature, art, and feminism since 1975. Opening soon is Room's Poetry and Fiction Contest. The poetry contest is judged by Vivek Shreya this year, and the fiction contest is judged by Zoe Whittall. It'll open on April 15th, and you can find all the details for how to enter your writing at roommagazine.com. And the co-presenter for Lit Mag Love is We Write, We Light. Whether you want to publish your writing, polish your work in progress, or just get set up with a writing routine you'll stick to, I help you and your words shine. You can sign up for my free five-day challenge that invites you to take daily concrete actions to help you create a writing routine you will keep. Find out more at wewritewelight.com. I'm back with my guest for this episode, Euphemia Fantetti, one of the essays editors at the Humber Literary Review. The Humber Literary Review is a new journal. It's the creation of Humber College's Department of English, and its collective includes writers, academics, critics, visual artists, and linguists. And their goal is to share their enthusiasm for work that provokes, excites, and entertains writing that makes you want to read more. So can you tell me about how you got 
involved in Humber Literary Review? And then I guess, what does that look like in terms of creating access and trying to not just, you know, not do harm to people that you're teaching or publishing, but also try to be that kind of gate opener for people who haven't had a chance to have their voice heard, let them have it heard faster? Right. Um, So I just joined last year and I have to say I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around the whole like wearing, I mean, it's probably reporters that do this, but in the 1940s, but I'm thinking of myself as like wearing that visor that editors wear in those 1940s black and white movies that you see where the editor's like chomping on a cigar and an old white haired guy. And I'm like, is that me? Like, it's not me. Those myths that existed for the longest time about who's the editor and who's the writer. And those are things that I'm kind of still confronting in my own life. And so What happened was I was working at Humber College as an instructor and um, Humber Lit Review did a mental health issue and I submitted something that they published and I was really grateful for that. And then after that, I just thought, well, maybe I can ask if I could be an editor. I couldn't imagine myself in that role, but I still was like, well, you got to start somewhere and maybe they'll let you. And the magazine is really new. It was the brainchild of Vera Belitsan, who was the associate dean of the school of liberal arts and sciences and she basically just sort of asked around and said do you think there's room for another uh, magazine in canada and everybody went yes and so they started pulling this together and it's a beautiful magazine that comes out twice a year and the editor is megan strymus who is herself a really brilliant poet and a really generous soul so i asked if i could be part of it and megan was like yes and so i'm um an essays editor with another woman, Elizabeth Oliver. And then there's fiction editors and poetry editors. And so what it looks like for me is I look for creative nonfiction. Um, The word essays is still one of those words that scared me in high school. So I'm like, really? I can't believe that's next to my name, essays editor. But I look at it as like taking the writing that comes through Humber Literary Review, the submissions that we get. And unfortunately, because of the fact that we're all like, teachers. And so we have like a heavy course load of students that we are working with every semester. The work has to be close to polished for when we get it. There are some things that I think like, okay, I can see maybe this will need some work. And do you have a chance to give feedback to people or do you make suggestions? I do, but it has to be light feedback. Like it's only going to need like one or two edits. It's not like really substantive edits that we're talking about. So it's that close to ready. But since we only do two issues a year, there's like a part where I'm like, am I already in the future? If I say it to this person, like, do you think you could work on this and let me see it again? That kind of thing. Because it's so new to me and because I'm still figuring it out. I think um, a year ago, the first issue, we got the pieces, worked on it, put it together. That was all good. And then I sort of realized, of course, rejection letters go out and it didn't even occur to me. And because of the fact that I'm a writer, I know what it feels like to get them. And I know what it's like as a human being to be rejected. So I asked Megan and Michael Spencer, our managing editor, if I could write a better rejection letter than the basic one that Submittable sends out. Because I think it's really difficult to do this stuff. It's difficult to create. Then it's difficult to edit. Then it's difficult to send it out. Then it's really painful to get the rejection. And so because I'm aware of that process, I said, I want to write like a nicer rejection letter because unfortunately we have a little bit of time to edit the work that we get. 
we don't have enough time to send back personalized rejections. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to send a nicer rejection that said, like, we get that this is hard. Don't cross us off your list. Keep sending to us and keep sending to other places. Because in um, truth, we also reject a lot of great work, right? So yes. that's something that doesn't come across. I don't know about you, but for me, that was one of the big eye-openers when I became an editor was, oh, okay. When it comes to the end, it, these are very difficult choices between really great yep. quality pieces. And, and yes. it's like more about the fit, not about... Exactly. Like the that's quality. the astonishing part where you're like, oh, this is a great companion piece to that one that we've already said yes to. And then you're like so we can't say yes to these ones. What are we going to do? And so it, it has been an eye opener that way. And I think we'll, we're going to be signing the, like when that rejection letter goes out, it'll say the editors of HLR because they took care of it the first time around. And I also remember saying like, I don't really want to put my name on a rejection letter because people will hold on to that. They'll be like, that person rejected me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? And it's like, no, that's not the person who rejected you. It's actually like a decision that's being made. The editors are in discussion. And I think because of what we were talking about, what's happened in the Canlet community is like, you can't always know who's really gunning for you to succeed and who is just sitting there kind of rubber stamping going like, I don't care if it doesn't look like me and it doesn't sound like me. I don't want to have anything to do with it. You can't really know. I mean, you know more now because you can see them on social media, right? But yeah. you have to be aware that there are like stages of people saying like, well, we can't accept this, but we also don't have, everybody's got like busy, busy work, life, all those things. And they don't always have time to get back to the person and say like, no, I really loved like your use of humor here. Like, I think this is really fantastic. Or even to say like who we think you should send it on to, like there's just not enough time. And I feel like that's the part where I'm like trying to make sure that, it, you know, it's new, but I'm going to get better at it and I'll be able to find a way to manage that and actually reach out to people and make sure that they're not slipping through the cracks. And so for me, I think I've just always been interested in diverse stories because there was so long that there was a lack of them or that they were being filtered through a white male voice. And I'm, I'm done. I don't need to hear that anymore. I've heard it. I'm not saying that people don't have something to say. I'm just saying like, I'm tired of hearing their version of someone else's story. Like I'm not interested because I'm in essays and creative nonfiction. I'm reading the true stories. So I'm like looking for the story that someone's going to share with me about what it is to be human, what it is to survive, like the many trials and tribulations of being a human being in this day and age and all the things that happen to us. Can you tell me about a recent piece that you chose for publication and, and why you picked that one? Sure. So this piece that we published that I really, really loved was called um, Memory Piece Macau. And it was written by Sean King. Like it's embarrassing maybe, but I've never heard of Macau. So I started reading this piece and it's just, he does this beautiful job of like, uh, he mixes playwriting with prose. And I hadn't seen anybody do that. And then he throws in this story I don't know if I would call it a fable. It's like a story of a butcher and a Buddhist priest. And I was like, this is so fascinating. All these different elements that he uses to basically weave a story about a place where it's like an island and it's like got Portuguese settlers in the 1500s. And then their population is something like just over half a million people, but they get 30 million visitors every year because they've got this huge gambling kind of structure to their economy. And so here's this guy whose father was born there and he goes back there 
the essays about him going back there and this relationship that's kind of falling apart. And he weaves in this story of this relationship falling apart with the story of this Buddhist priest who thinks he's kind of holier than the butcher and the butcher who basically cuts out his own heart to kind of say like, I want to be a better person. And like, there's just so much in it that I'm in love with in terms of the way he tells the story, the way he mixes up genres, the way I learn about a place I've never even heard of before. Now I'm on the, you know, I'm Googling and going like Macau, where is it? What the, this is everything I love about writing where people take this story about a place and their experience of it and how it's such a huge part of their identity. And now they've opened up a door and let me into their world and I can come in and be part of that world with them. And I'm not there as a tourist. I'm there as a person like experiencing what they experienced and I'm feeling it like they're feeling it. And I just, I love work that does that. I love work that gives me that opportunity to expand my awareness of the world and the human heart. I think we should end there. That is lovely. <laughs> That's so good. good. We're going to end on the human heart, actually. Good, because um, I, I don't want to be a downer. <laughs> it, was, it was a bit rainy here today. so. <laughs> well, I thank you so much for the time that you've generously given. This was really wonderful. So thank you. And that concludes my interview with Euphemia Fantetti. Unfortunately, because I could just talk to her forever about writing about trauma and loss, about the writing life in general, about so many things. But let's go over what she talked about specifically about submitting to the Humber Literary Review. So one thing that I think is really important to underscore for you is that the work has to be close to polished. They just do not have the time to do substantive edits on work. So it may not be a place to send work that you haven't been able to do many, many edits on, that you haven't been able to work with someone on editing, and possibly not the place to submit your work if it's your first time. Never say never, but it definitely sounds like you're not going to even be able to get a lot of personalized feedback about what worked and what didn't work in the piece. On the other hand, another thing that we learned from talking to Euphemia is that she's really interested in publishing diverse stories, as she puts it, because it has been so long that there has been a lack of them and it's been filtered through a white male voice. So she's done. She doesn't want to hear anymore. She's heard it and she's tired of hearing their version of someone else's story. So she is definitely looking for stories that are not often heard in journals or have been more on the margins of writing. So those are definitely stories to send to her. And she's looking for a story that someone is going to share with her about what it is to be human, what it is to survive the many trials and tribulations being a human being in this day and age and all the things that happen to us. And that's a direct quote from her. And if you're looking for the piece that she mentions by Xiong King called Memory Piece Macau, it is in the print edition of the Humber Literary Review. And there are links to that website and, and to the table of contents for that issue on the Lit Mag Love podcast website. However, it's not available online, so you'd have to pick up the print copy to see that one. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, Literature, Art and Feminism since 1975, and We Write, We Light, online courses and more to help you polish and publish your writing. Sound editing for this episode is done by Micah Lemiski. She's the host of Fainting Couch Feminists, also presented by Room. 
And you can find out more about the Lit Mag Love podcast online at litmaglovepodcast.com or on Twitter or Instagram at litmaglove. Thank you for listening.